So as we open the Word of God today, I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pause to ask Him to speak to us today. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, thank You that You got us through this week. Thank You, Lord, for waking us up each and every morning. Thank You for the health that we have at this time. Enough, Lord, to bring us here to meet with You. And whether we're here in person, Lord, or whether we're watching online, near and far, we pray that the same Holy Spirit who is able to be in all places at the same time would minister to our hearts, speak to our hearts, convict us. Give us an understanding, Lord, of of something that we may need to understand. So we thank you, Lord, for answering this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I begin a two-part sermon series entitled, The Survivors of the Great Controversy. There are times when an unexpected and even surprising win takes place between two rivals. It's a final showdown. Only one wins. And it often happens in sports. In fact, just a week ago, Argentina won against Brazil in the Copa America. So I tried to advance my slides here. And a week ago, yeah, Argentina, they, they won against Brazil. And since I'm from Brazil, my, I mean, Argentina, did I just say that? Since I'm from Argentina myself, it's okay to say amen. Yes, they won last week. And during this time, two long droughts ended on that day. Argentina won its first major title since 1993. So that was pretty exciting. And Lionel Messi finally lifted his first major trophy for the national team since beginning to play for them. The win was a long-awaited victory for Argentina's uh, captain and star player in a career with the national team, which includes, until now, nothing but losses in four World Cups and five Copa Américas. Finally, a win after so many losses. It was a victory for Argentina. Another showdown that I recall was the Women's World Cup Final back in 2011, about a decade ago. Some of you may remember it. I still remember it as if it was yesterday. Japan had lost to the U.S. team 25 consecutive times. (laughs) And now they met in the final. So you can imagine Japan's unbelievable victory in the championship final against the U.S. was what millions around the world 
did not expect. Another showdown that I recall is one found in the scriptures. It's not, it's not a showdown of two teams in any kind of sport. Enter the realm, the spiritual realm. You see, there's not a shortage of championship upsets, even controversial ones in the world of sports. But what I would like to draw our attention to is another type of showdown that is in the unseen realm, otherwise known as the great controversy. This one is not a game. It's not a game. And in the final face-off between Christ and Satan, the outcome will not be unexpected. So what is the all-time record between the two? Let me remind you, lest we forget how he has led us in past history. If you have your Bibles, if not, there's a Bible in your pew pocket. Come with me to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. There in Revelation chapter 12, in that single chapter, we find a record of multiple battles between Christ and Satan. There in Revelation chapter 12, we find a record of the historical decisive battles between Christ and Satan. And as we take a look, we're going to see that there is a pattern, there is a trend that is in our favor. Revelation chapter 12. In one instance, Satan is symbolized as a dragon. And he fights in heaven against Michael and his angels, whose name Michael means one who is like God. One who is like God. And then verse 4, Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, Satan is pictured as a fiery red dragon who brings down a third of the angels. It mentions stars. Remember, apocalyptic writings are full of symbols and stars are often a symbol of angels. And a third of the angels are cast down to the earth with him. A third. You know what that means. It's a simple math equation. A third is one of every three. And you know what that means? You know what that means, don't you? Whenever the fallen spiritual forces of darkness fall heavy on you, just remember, they're outnumbered. For every dark, fallen angel, yes, there's many of them, but for every dark, fallen angel, there are two glorious angels of light that excel in strength. And this is a crucial factor that we need to remember in the last days before the return of Christ. In this great controversy, do not forget 
with Christ, we're with the majority. We're not outnumbered. And Satan would want you to overlook that, to forget it, when he comes with you with his lies. But he's outnumbered. And as we come to verses 7 to 9, there in Revelation 12, we're still in Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9, the immediate context, you've got to understand, there's, there's various contexts. There's the, the general context, the context of, of the book of Revelation. Well, the context of this passage, the immediate context, is victory at the cross of Calvary. For it says salvation has come. What tense is that? Present. Not salvation will come. No, salvation has come. Present tense. And the serpent of old. It's referring to the serpent of old. Not the fallen angel Lucifer. This is the serpent of old has been cast down. The serpent of old has been overcome by the blood. The blood of the lamb. This is at the cross. But there's also flashbacks to what? To the original war in heaven. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's unmistakably there. It's, there's flashbacks to that original war in heaven between Michael, one who is like God, and the dragon. You see, make no mistake about it. The cross, the Roman cross, in the spring of A.D. 31, settled the issues raised by this war that took place before the foundation of the world. The cross settled the issue. God is love. God is fair. God is true. God is justice. God is mercy. All these things were settled at the cross. Issues that had been brought up originally up in heaven with Lucifer. So that's that way the two events are so closely related, you see. But let's read verses 7 to 9. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9 says, And war broke out in heaven. There's a showdown. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and his angels, and the dragon and his angels fought, and they did not prevail. They lost, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. In no uncertain terms, the apostle John records what he was shown in vivid imagery. What John saw, he recorded faithfully. And what did he see? He saw that Christ won and Satan lost. Do you believe that? It's there in the Bible. It's recorded. And the angel did say to John, Right, for these things are true. Christ won, Satan lost. It's also recorded that Satan even tried to destroy the infant Christ. What a loser. Pick on someone your own size. 
He tries to destroy the infant child as soon as he was born. Look at verse 4. The end of verse 4, there in chapter 12. The end of verse 4 says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. But the Bible records that, jo- that Joseph, the father of, of the husband of Mary, was warned in a dream. And they fled to Egypt in the nick of time. God had appointed the time and everything was just in time. And you know the rest of the story. It's in the Gospels. Christ went on to finish the redemptive work that he had come to do. And then he returned to glory as a victor. Satan failed. He was defeated in an assassination attempt at the birth of Christ. He failed. Christ, throughout his earthly ministry, Satan time and time again attacked Christ in ways that he will never attack you and I. He attacked Christ at the very, at the very core of who he was, the Son of God. But Christ overcame temptation, and he did not fall. And he returned to glory. Notice verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And notice, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. In other words, he returned victoriously, triumphantly, mission accomplished. He returned to his throne. So once again, Christ won and Satan lost. It's there in chapter 12. I love this theme. When the battle was won at the cross, just before he was caught up to God and his throne, a voice, a loud voice was heard saying there in verses 10 to 12, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death therefore rejoice O heavens and you dwell in them woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you having great wrath why because he knows that he has what kind of time short time revelation chapter 12 Verse 12. He has a short time, but enough time for one last great battle. Time and time again, Satan has attacked, he has fought against Christ, he's been defeated. Satan loses. Christ wins. This has been the the track record. This is the, the, the record that we have of battles between good and evil in this great controversy. But make no mistake about it. Time is ticking away. But there's enough time for one last great battle. He lost in heaven. He lost at the incarnation. 
he lost at the cross. Now Satan would attempt to destroy Christianity. The faithful followers of Christ. He finally got got the hint. That he's he's not going to overtake the Christ. It's not going to happen. But maybe, just maybe, he can overtake the followers of Christ and destroy Christianity altogether. Look at verse 13. Revelation 12, verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child to the male child. Hmm. Remember, there's a lot of symbols in, in prophecy. In Bible prophecy, a woman symbolizes a church. And in this context, the church is the bride of Christ. Just follow with me. And in attempting to destroy her, in attempting to destroy the church, in, a, in an attempt to destroy the faithful followers of Christ, He persecutes her, particularly during an era known as the Dark Ages. Millions were killed. So would persecution be her demise? Would Satan be able to pull the greatest upsets in the history of any showdown between two rivals. Let's continue reading. Verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nurtured, for nourished rather for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. What did we just read? She is protected from her adversary in a place prepared for her. A place prepared for her. For how long of a period? This verse says time, times, and half a time. We'll come back to that in a minute. But who prepared a place of safety and refuge? Who prepared a safe haven for the church? Was it the state? Was it some federal agency? Was it some earthly administration? Who who prepared a safe place for the church? For a specific answer, let's go back to an earlier mention of this scene. Then the same chapter, verse 6. Come with me to verse 6. What we just read was a repetition and enlargement of what we will read now in verse 6. It says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place don't miss this, prepared by who? By God. Prepared by God. Prepared by God. That they should feed her 
there 1,260 days. She is safe. She is secure. She is fed. She is nourished in a place prepared by who? By God. Prepared by God. Do you see who God is? Let's, let's be, before we dive too, in, too much into the, 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 the dramatic scene that unfolds, let's pause to get a picture of God. See, we, sometimes we can't read through prophecy so quickly that, that we're after the, 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 the spectacular, the excitement, the, the adventure, the, 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 the bloody, the gruesome, the beastly. Let's, let's slow down sometimes to be sure that we capture who God is and what He's done. Do you see? Do you see who God is? Do you really know who He is? Let's allow David, the psalmist, to answer this question. Come with me. We'll come back to Revelation, but come with me to Psalms chapter 46. Just turn over to Psalms. Chapter 46, Psalms chapter 46 reveals to us a picture of a God. Who is this God who has prepared a place for the woman who's being persecuted by the dragon? Who is this God? What does this God do that is a God who is there, ever mindful of his bride, the bride of Christ? Who is this God? who comes and prepares a place for her? Psalms 46, verses 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Do we have a witness here today? A witness who can say, I know that God. I know this God. I can tell a testimony of a God who is very present in my time of trouble. A God very present in help and trouble, therefore, you know that word therefore means, don't you? Because this is true. Because I'm fully convinced that God is my refuge and strength. Because that is a fact because that is a, a belief that I stand on. That is a promise that I stand on. Therefore, we will not what? Fear. We will not fear. Under what circumstances? Even though the earth be removed can, any get, get in, get, can it get any worse than that? And though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling, how does your trouble that you're going through right now look in light of what we just read? The psalmist is trying to create the, the worst case scenario. Though the earth be removed. But even then, he writes, My God is very present help in trouble. 
Therefore, I will not fear. You see, fear threatens our trust in God. You let that just simple concept just really sink in. Fear threatens our trust in God. And it redirects us to put our trust in someone or something else. Fear has a way of causing forgetfulness of what God has done for us in the past. Think about that. When we are paralyzed with fear, it seems that we just have spiritual amnesia where we forget miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle that God has performed in our life. Case in point, the nation of Israel. They were shaking in their sandals. They could not be still. They were so afraid. But they were left like scratching our heads thinking, but, 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 but. Did they not remember? Did they forget what the Lord had done for them again and again and again before that time? But see, what, that's what fear does. Causes us to forget what the Lord has done in the past. And where does the spirit of fear come from? Not from God. Not from God. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Paul wrote that. Nowadays, the spirit of fear is coming from many different places. Many different means. But there's only one mastermind behind it all. There's one player, there's one mastermind behind every means of fear that we are bombarded with day after day after day. He is known as the thief who wants to steal our power that we have in Christ. He wants to kill our love that we have for Christ. And he wants to destroy our sound mind that we have placed in Christ. That's what he does. That's his agenda. Nothing more, nothing less. He wants to gradually enslave us by removing one freedom at a time. And he'll do that so, so, in such a subtle way that if we are not eyes wide open, we're going to be caught completely off guard and find ourselves in a place that we wouldn't want to be. We're living in troubling times. But again, we are reminded that God is a very present help in trouble. Do you believe that? Therefore, we will not fear. We will not fear. Let's go back to Revelation 12 now. Revelation 12, now that we got a, a, a picture of the character of God. He's the very God who's at the very heart of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation pictures a God who is ever-present, a God who cares, a God who loves, a God who protects his bride. 
And the verse concludes with the mention of 1,260 days. Now, students of Bible prophecy, namely Daniel and Revelation, you, you soon discover that all the symbolism there in Daniel and Revelation is, is interpreted or it's explained by Scripture itself. So principle in Bible study is let the Bible interpret itself, especially in the context of prophecy. And the Bible reveals that in Bible prophecy, a prophetic day is a little year in symbolic language. And so 1260 days is really 1260 years, right, in Bible prophecy. Now, in a previous verse, we read it earlier, mentioned a time, times, and half a time. Time, times, and half a time. Are these two different time periods? Short answer, no. Not at all. You see, in ancient times, 12 30-day months were used for the year. 12 30-day months, making it a total of 360 days. Referring a year, 360 days, as a time. A time. Times, plural, times, two times, would be two years, or 720 days. And so then half a time would be 180 days. So you do the simple math. Time, times, and half a time is precisely 1,260 days. Also referred to as 42 months in Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. Or again, time, times, and half a time in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Here's another Bible principle when you study prophecy. Connect the dots. When you see, when you see um, phrases, expression, terms, as such as 42 months, time, times, half a time, 1260 days or years, all these are describing the same time period. And what was this time period? Well, if you look at all the characteristics of the beast power, the Bible tells us that this time period would extend during the time of power in which the beast power would have full state authority, which was given to it in 538 A.D. It's right there. Look it up in history. The papacy was given full state authority. And if you go 1260 years from 538 AD, it lands on 1798. If you take it precisely 1260 years, and what happened in 1798? Mm -hmm. the, the history reveals that the Pope was taken captive by the French army precisely on time. You see, the God of prophecy will reveal to us things that are yet untold or foreseen so that when they do come to pass, we'll be able to establish our faith on a sure foundation. 
And is it all by chance? No, not at all. Not at all. You see, during these 1260 years, it was a very difficult time for the people of God. Satan tried to overtake the the faithful like a flood. Have you ever seen a, a tidal wave come and sweep across a populated area? It is your worst nightmare. That flood comes and it just completely overwhelms anything and everything in its way. And Satan would attempt to come in like a flood, but Christ protected his bride by providing a safe hidden place in the mouth of the earth or the wilderness, namely an unpopulated area part of the world, a safe place until the end of the papacy rule in 1798. That's precisely what was described in verses 15 and 16. Notice with me the following verses. There, verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away. Verse 16. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Once again, Christ wins. Christ protects His church. Therefore, the church wins and Satan loses. Satan attempted to completely do away with the church through persecution, but that failed. Instead, the church grew larger and stronger because of it. And here's where the prophecy actually becomes fascinating. Look at verse 17, the verse that follows there, verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. He's enraged with this movement, Christianity, that was established there in Antioch, where men and women were called Christians for the first time. There, the dragon attempted to destroy the church, but he failed. He's enraged with the woman. And so, what does he do next? And he went to make war. Now with who? With the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why did I say this is when things get really interesting? I'll tell you why. In keeping with the prophetic timeline, this declaration of war, that's what it is. He's declaring war. There in verse 17 takes place after the period of 1260 years. Also known as time, times, and half a time. There in verse 14. Do you see the sequence? The the dragon, during the 1260 years, is enraged with the woman. And he tries to destroy her and persecutes her. But he fails. After the 1260 years, after that time period, he now attacks the rest of her offspring. 
So this declaration of war, specifically targeting the rest of her offspring, takes place after the time period known as the 1260 days or years. In other words, sometime after 1798, because that's when the 1260 years ends. After 1798, Satan declared war further engaged in the great controversy with who? The rest of her offspring. The Greek word, the Greek meaning of the word translated rest is those who remain. Those who remain. During the 1260 years, It was a bloody mess. There were many martyrs that went to the burning stake singing hymns, praises to God. Satan failed in doing away with the church. It nearly, nearly was terminated, but it survived. And now the rest of the offspring, those who would follow, in their footsteps, the rest, those who remain, the rest of her offspring are now engaged in a great controversy with the enemy himself. Those who remain, in other words, the survivors of the spiritual confusion during the Dark Ages. And in this cosmic timeline, Sometime after 1798, the rest of her offspring appears on the scene as Satan's target of wrath. And what do we notice about them? Only two characteristics are mentioned. Only two. Many more could have been mentioned, I'm sure. But why only two? So that we would make no mistake about it. Two characteristics are enough for a revelation to take place, an understanding of who these people are. What two characteristics do they have? One of them is they keep the commandments. They keep the commandments. Now, remember, this is long after Mount Sinai. This is beyond the Old Testament era. Obviously, this is after the cross. Yet, there's a people who are obedient to God's moral law, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments. It's one of the, one of the two characteristics. After all, after the cross, the cross redeemed us from disobedience. And so what do we find here? That those who remain, those who endure, those who survive are commandment-keeping friends of God. And in looking for Bible-believing, last-day-surviving followers of the great controversy, followers of Christ in the great controversy, one can ask, do you keep the commandments of God? It's a biblical, biblically legit question for our day. The second characteristic is they have the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 19.10 actually identifies the spirit 
that as the spirit of prophecy. In other words, the prophetic gift would be manifested among them. After all, the Bible tells us in Amos chapter 3, verse 3. Amos 3, 3, such a, such a good verse to remember. Amos 3, 3 tells us that the Lord does nothing, nothing, unless He reveals His plans to His servants, the who? The prophets. See, that's how God operates. And if there was ever a time, think about this, if there was ever a time when, when God would need to reveal His plans to a group of survivors coming out of spiritual confusion and darkness, stepping out into the light, if there was ever a time that God would need to reveal His plans to them, it would be at that moment in time. Therefore, the necessity for the spirit of prophecy. So why is Satan so angry at them? Because their loyalty to God is demonstrated by their commandment keeping. And Satan hates loyalty. He wants to receive all worship. He doesn't want loyalty to be with anything or anyone else. He wants it all. And he hates those that refuse to give him loyalty and worship. So he's angry with these commandment-keeping people. And why is he angry with them in addition to that? Well, their path is being led by the Holy Spirit inspiration of prophecy. They know where they're going. And Satan hates that. Because what he wants to do is try to get people in, into a place that they have no clue where they are. And if he can get them there, if he can get them lost... He has them where he wants them. He does not want them led in the path that leads to life. And who guides us into all truth? The Spirit. And who is the Spirit? The Spirit of prophecy. And so Satan hates these people. That is his target of hatred. And so question, would there be a band of believers obedient to the commandments of God committed to following him, committed, I didn't say perfected in following him, sanctification, making us perfect, making us holy, is a work of a lifetime. But they're committed. What does committed mean? Committed means that the righteous man, he knows, he falls seven times. But seven times, he gets back up again. See, commitment means that when you fall by the grace of God, and His grace is sufficient, by the grace of God, we get back up again. That's commitment. These are people who are committed. They are committed. They are followers of Christ. They keep the commandments of God. Would there be a band of believers that have this shared experience of upholding God's law has not been done away with? God, at the heart of God's law, calls us to worship Him who made heaven and earth. Is there a people who would be obedient to the commandments of God with at least one person, at least one, if not more, but at least one person among them manifesting the gift of prophecy sometime after 1798? Remember, it's after. It's after. 
1260 years, which ended in 1798, it's after that time period that Satan now is angry with the rest of her offspring. After 1798, would there be a people with those two main characteristics? Well, something significant did happen sometime soon after 1798. In fact, it was in the early 1800s, at the, at the, at the heels of 1798. What happened then? A bombshell was dropped on North American Christianity in the person and voice of a man named William Miller. Who was he? He was a former captain in the War of 1812. Miller was was a a square-jawed, honest, church-going farmer who who was convicted by the Holy Spirit to isolate himself with only a Bible and a concordance. Nothing more, nothing less. I'm going to go with my Bible, my concordance, to determine Bible truth for myself, he said. I'm going to study, study, until I get to the bottom of it. And that he did. And from his exhaustive study of the book of Daniel, he became convinced that the time of Christ's second coming was revealed in Bible prophecy. After reading Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, he read that for until 2,300 days, then the, the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Well, he was convinced that the sanctuary was the earth and the cleansing by, must be by fire. Therefore, it is the end of the world, which means the coming of Christ. And in 1822, Miller formally stated, I believe that the second coming of Jesus Christ is near even at the door, even within 22 years. The date was precisely calculated to be October 22, 1844. And as the greatly anticipated year approached, Miller was preaching his heart out. You know what happened? The crowds got larger and larger and larger. People were just completely captivated by Miller's preaching. And in six months, he delivered more than 300 sermons on the single constant theme. Are you ready to meet your Savior? Are you ready to meet your Savior? Are you ready to meet your Savior? That was his theme In 1843, at a Millerite meeting held in Maine, another man by the name of James White began his meeting by dramatically marching down the center aisle of the church, beating time on his book, saying, you will see your Lord a-coming You will see your Lord a-coming. You will see your Lord a-coming in a few more days. He stated, many wept. And the state of feeling was most favorable for the introduction of the grave subject for the evening which was that Jesus was returning in a few more days. Then the emotionally 
charged day of October 22 arrived. This history is fascinating. You should look it up. Read more about it. They simply abandoned home and family and walked out into the open fields to wait the coming of the Lord. They abandoned everything, their livelihood, everything. They pulled kids out of school. It's over. You don't need education. We have no future here on earth. Jesus is coming in a few more days, in a few more hours. He's coming. And they went out, their eyes up towards heaven, waiting and waiting. All that emotion turned into despair and depression when the sun set. And darkness came. But when the, when the new day dawned, the next day, Christ had not come. And the hope and message that they tasted by the study of that little book of Daniel was so sweet as honey. I'm sure you love honey. I love honey. It's the sweetest thing. And, and, and this, this word picture is used to describe what they felt like, what it felt like when they read and believed and proclaimed with enthusiasm, Jesus is coming in a few more days. The message was sweet as honey. It was so well received. But it became bitter in the stomach when he did not return. Hiram Etson wrote, our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted. Such a spirit of weeping came over us as I've never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept to the day dawn. The Apostle John, under inspiration, foretold of this sweet, bitter experience. This precisely, this experience. In Revelation chapter 10. Come with me to Revelation chapter 10. Oh, Revelation chapter 10, verse 10. Written long before any of this unfolded. But the spirit of prophecy inspired John as he wrote about these scenes without having a clue about what they meant. Chapter 10, verse 10, he wrote, Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became Bitter. And listen to what he was told in verse 11. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. The last word could also be translated to. To many people, nations, tongues, and kings. Does that sound familiar? Does it ring a bell? A message that is to be proclaimed with a loud voice to every people, every nation, every tongue, every language. 
That is the wording that's also found in the three angels' message, indicating, giving us just enough hint that the context of the message found in Revelation 14 is the message that needs to be given now, but again. The commission is clear, is very clear. In verse 11, it couldn't be any clearer. It says, you must, you must, you must. It's an imperative, you must. It is given to a people who know about endurance. You have survived, you've endured. You are now at a time, in a place where you must prophesy again. It's given to a people who know patience, to a people who do not lose heart. They prophesied once, but now they must do it again. They are known as the survivors. These are the ones who remain. These are the rest of her offspring. And after a bitter and disappointing experience, they are commanded, you must rise and preach again. Again. Why? Because God is not done yet. In fact, he was just getting started. You see, as a result of the dark age of compromise, during that dark period, just follow this, during that dark period of persecution, it led to compromise. If Satan cannot destroy the church with persecution, he's going to creep in through the back door and bring in unbiblical content that will lead to compromise. And what happened? Many non-biblical teachings would find their way into the medieval church and consequently into the Protestant churches that would be born during this dark period. And so for many centuries, even now, non-biblical teachings... To name a few, eternal fiery torment, the immortal soul, Sunday sacredness, infant baptism, and others would become more and more fundamental, more and more popular among sincere Christians and the primitive, unadulterated teachings from the Bible and the Bible only would soon be forgotten. And God says, it's time that we prophesy again, again, to who? To a people who were turned around, a little confused, a little lost, in the dark. And here's a God who is a God of light, known as the fathers of light, the father of lights, who wants to be able to lead his creation, his intelligent human beings, those who reason, to be able to come and realize the truth as it is in Jesus. It was read earlier in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. 
reminds us that the path of the righteous is like the morning sun. In what ways? As it dawns in a new day. It doesn't just, poof, appear in full glory. No, the morning sun gradually, very slowly and gradually makes its appearance in such a way that the light gradually and gently becomes brighter and brighter and brighter until the full light of day. I recently visited my family and I. We took a little road trip and went to Utah. And there we went to Arches National Park. Oh, what a gorgeous place. It was our first time, so we were excited to go there. And we were not disappointed to see the beauty of the arches. The only problem was that we went to Utah in July. We missed the memo. Days were, on average, all days were over 100 degrees, without exception. But then they got to 105, 110. One day it was 115. 115 degrees. And so, unfortunately, or fortunately, well, whatever way you look at it, we were able to enjoy some indoor air-conditioned activities during the day. So which meant that we would have to be outdoors. If we were going to spend any amount of time outdoors, it was going to be in the early morning or evening, which turned out to be a blessing because those are the most beautiful times of the day, the sunrise and the sunset. And so one day, after we were there a few days, I told my wife, honey, I'm this close. I'm going to get up early in the morning. No, 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 I mean really early. I'm going to set my alarm for 4 30 a.m. I'm going to get up. I know sunset is at 6 o'clock. And so I'm going to get up early enough that I'm going to go out to the park, out to Arches, open 24-7. So I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to find my way through a trail and get to a place where I can see the sunset, or the sunrise, rather, sunrise. And so I did. And when I arrived, the park was pitch black. It's in such, the location is such in a perfect place where it's far away from the city lights. It's perfect blackness, darkness. You could see the stars. One night we saw the Milky Way. It was, it was, it was amazing. So I got there early, early. And as I arrived, the sun had not quite made its appearance, but... It was telling me that it was just around the corner because you could see the, the light of the dawning day before the sun could actually come above the horizon. And so the light began to shine. It shined, it shined enough that I didn't have to use a flashlight. So I turned off my flashlight and I found myself walking on a trail headed towards what I would have regarded the place to go. If there's going to be one arch in that park, it's going to be one called the Delicate Arch. The Delicate Arch is a 52-foot freestanding natural arch. And it was amazing because as I arrived to this place, it got close. I, was, I arrived just in time 
To be able to see the sun just break through the horizon and its rays of light begin to shine. And the scene unfolded right before me. It just got brighter and brighter as that light began to, to shine on that delicate arch and the colors, which photos do no justice, the colors were so beautiful as that morning glow just rested upon that arch and that rock. And there I was, the scene was becoming brighter and brighter and brighter until the perfect day. And as it was, I had prayed to the Lord, I had said, Lord, where are we going to meet this morning? Where should we meet, Lord? Go ahead, show the way. And as I stood overlooking the arch in that part of the park, my eyes locked in to the place where the Lord was calling me to meet with him. So I went all around the, around the bowl. There's a bowl right next to the arch. And I went all the way down. And then I went all the way up the side of the bowl, just below the arch, if you see the arch there to the right of the picture, just below it, you see that, that, that dark spot? Well, there's like a little cave, little opening, a little cleft of the rock there. And there is where I met Jesus that morning. I got in there, perfect, out of sight, got my Bible, and I began to spend time with Jesus. And as I was there in the cleft of that rock. A song came to mind. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land, and indeed it was. He hideth my life in the, with the depths of his love, and he covers me there with his hand. He covers me there with his hand. And as I worshipped there, I couldn't help but to realize that our God, my God, is a God who cares about every step I take in life. He directs our path. And if he directs my path and takes me to a place where he is going to meet with me, I know I know that he did the same with that early movement known as the Millerites from all distinct doctrinal, denominational backgrounds, covered with the hand of God. They studied their Bibles. Men and women who said, Lord, Holy Spirit, guide me into all truth. They studied line upon line, here a little, there a little. They studied the Bible until they discovered new light. And they soon realized, they soon realized that if they're going to be studying the Word of God, they have to let the word of God interpret itself. And so they study their Bibles, and they soon realize that a fundamental change in one belief necessitated a change in another. So they search the scriptures deeper, yet deeper. It would take time. It took time before they worked out a harmonized position on several different topics. But they gradually came to see the truth as it is in Jesus. As that morning sun gradually spread its light across the land. And the disappointed Millerites soon learned that Jesus had not failed them. Jesus never fails. 
The cleansing of the sanctuary, as mentioned in Daniel 8.14, was in fact a reference to the heavenly sanctuary, not the earth. And it was the commencement of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary as foretold or foreshadowed by the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. Aha! The ha-ha moment came when they realized, and it all made sense. Why? Because God's light was indeed shining brighter and brighter. James White, James White wrote, went on to write, it was not, God did not design to bring his people out of confusion of Babylon into greater confusion of no order nor discipline. This would only be making a bad matter worse. His object in bringing them out from the churches was to discipline and unite them for the last great battle of truth. God's objective was for a Bible-believing people to take the sword of truth and proclaim, proclaim the message, a forgotten message that professed Christians were no longer preaching. And James White went on to write, it was not ambition to build up a denomination that suggested organization, but the sheer necessities of the cause. They couldn't help but to realize that they had, they had to establish order for God as a God of order. And they couldn't help but tell the biblical truth about the manner of Christ's second coming. They couldn't help but tell. They couldn't help but tell about the truths of the scripture when one dies. They couldn't help but tell what happens when one dies. They couldn't help but tell about the truth about the seven-day Sabbath. They couldn't help but tell the truth about the spirit of prophecy. They couldn't help but tell the truth about the heavenly sanctuary. And when the time came, when conviction took hold of their hearts, and it became evident that a more orderly structure needed to take place along with a name, when that time, time came, they prayed more than ever before. During this meeting, there was a gathering together, and some recommended that this movement that had come together by men and women who were studying the Word of God, that they'd be called the Church of God. And some thought that that sounded a little bit too boastful, the Church of God. And so after a brief discussion and further proposals, Seventh-day Adventist was proposed. It was proposed by name, a man named David Hewitt. He was a layman who introduced the motion, recommended that we call ourselves Seventh-day Adventists. It was a name that had a ring to it, for it declared the loyalty of God of a people who worship him who made heaven and earth and are waiting for his return. And it was carried right there and then on October 1, 1860, approximately 16 years after the great disappointment of October 22, 1844. 
a day that ought to be remembered not as the great disappointment, but rather, I would say, the day of God's appointment. Because think about this as we close, that on the road to Emmaus, when there are two men, two disciples of Christ, who were what? Disappointed. Were they not? These two men were disappointed. And what happened? Jesus showed up. The Jesus that they had been preaching for so long, the Jesus that they had proclaimed, the Jesus that they had believed in, shows up to these two men who are now disappointed. And what does he do? He reveals to them what really took place. He revealed to them further light in being able to clarify, give further understanding of who he was, what he came to do. In the same way. In the same way. But nearly two millenniums later, Jesus comes once again, very close to earnest, but puzzled and disappointed disciples, believers, in the months following the great disappointment. And what does he do? He revealed to them, to men and women, what really happened in October 22, 1844. What happened? Our heavenly high priest began yet another phase of the judgment. He gave further understanding of what had taken place that day. Ellen G. White recalls with these words, it was a bitter disappointment that fell upon the little flock whose faith had been so strong and whose hope had been so high. But we were surprised that we felt so free in the Lord and were so strongly sustained by his grace, strength, and grace. Remember Psalms 42, a very present help in trouble? And she ends by saying, we were disappointed, yeah, but not disheartened. Echoing the words of the Apostle Paul in his epistle in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we are hard-pressed on every side. Tell us about it. We live in an age where we are hard-pressed, but not crushed. Perplexed, yes, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. That's why we are survivors. The beauty of this movement is that it arose from a diversity of Christian believers who had such an earnest longing for Bible truth. God rewards the heart that seeks to understand. And they were willing to count the cost and be a part of something greater than themselves. And so, my question to you is simply this. Have you counted the cost? All the faithful before us, in every age, in every period of time, during every battle, in which Satan was defeated, and Christ won, Every faithful throughout the ages counted the cost. They were willing to stand up for truth though the heavens fall. They were willing to sacrifice even if it meant their to death to stand up for Jesus. You see, that's what it's going to take in this last, final, great battle of truth. 
The calling is still the same. A people who will count the cost. Are you fully convinced of your beliefs as they are found in the Bible and the Bible only? Are you convicted? Have you been led to a love for the truth? A love that never fails, that never ends. Let me tell you why you should be. Because there's, this is much greater than you. This movement is far much greater than me, far much greater than you, far much greater than living hope, is far much greater than us. And God is calling us to be a part of it. Calling us to be survivors of the great controversy. Uniting together for this last great battle of truth. The thief wants to steal, kill, and destroy, but Christ sets us free and gives us abundant life. And you may have come here today feeling overwhelmed, burdened by the father of lies. You feel that he has bombarded you left and right. You feel beat up. But I'm here to remind you I'm here to tell you today that Christ can win in your life once again. That God is the winner. And look at his track record. Christ will win again in your life. Christ wins, Satan loses. And Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Come, he says, and stand on the winning side. So my appeal to you today is this. Are you willing to give Jesus your all in all? Are you willing to yield yourself to him? Give him full control of your life. Lift up your eyes towards heaven. And see Him not only as your Savior, who saved you by the blood of the Lamb, but as the King and Lord of your life. Will you allow Him to sit on the throne of your life for such a time as this in the last days of earth's history? If that is your choice, Today, you want to affirm and reaffirm it. I invite you to just raise your hand towards heaven right now. Is that your choice? If you're reviewing online, do the same with us. Raise your hand towards heaven. Count yourself among those that God is calling to be faithful until the end, to be a part of this movement that has been given a clear calling. And there might be someone here today who is impressed to take a stand with Jesus, to demonstrate your loyalty to Him by saying, Jesus, count it the cost. I want to lay it all out. And I want to take a stand in public. I want to take a stand 
to let the world know that I stand with Jesus. And I want to do so by preparing for baptism. I want to be a part of this last day movement prophesied by the spirit of prophecy in the book of Revelation. A movement called by God unlike any other church or denomination gathering of people. This is a movement, something greater than ourselves. And God's calling you right now to take a stand. Will you be the one to do so? I invite you to stand with me right now. If there's someone here today that wants to stay out and say, I want to take a stand with God's people and for prepare for baptism to demonstrate my loyalty, my faithfulness to God. Maybe even re-baptism as the Holy Spirit calls you to come back to walk by faith in Him and Him alone. Is there anyone here today that wants to take a stand for Jesus? Anyone here today? The Holy Spirit is moving in your heart. And I know that as we stand in the last days, if we're going to be standing then, we must be standing now. So as we close with prayer, will you stand together with me now? If you want to say, I want to stand with Jesus till the very end, faithful until death. If that is your prayer, please stand together with me as we close. God bless you. God bless you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are such a good God that wants to be known, wants to give us a revelation of who you are and what is to come. And I ask that you would anoint our lives with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, seal our hearts and keep us faithful until the end. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.